this week on The Startup Life. And I was working with our CEO, and even until the last days, he was sort of under, I think, somewhat of delusion that they could turn this thing around. And I guess at a CEO, you have to be really positive, but I don't think that you can be delusional either. All right, Startup Nation, so let's take flight with Jason Troy, executive coach and founder of JasonTroy.com. The Startup Life begins now. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Hey, Startup Nation. Do you enjoy the startup life? Now you can let the world know with gear from the show. Choose from the label yourself, make your own luck, and making money t-shirts to tell your story of your path of entrepreneurship. Click the link in the show notes to purchase. All right, Startup Nation. So I hope you're ready to receive some value today. This is Dominic Lawson with the Startup Life powered by the Binge Podcast Network. So today we have Jason Troy of jasontroy.com. How's it going, Jason? It is going fantastic and happy holidays to you and everyone else. Likewise, likewise. Happy holidays to you as well. So are you ready to pour some knowledge into Startup Nation today? I am ready. Awesome, let's do it. So Jason, tell me about your path to entrepreneurship. Well, it's a windy road, like I think every other person in a non-linear path. I started out going to law school and getting my master's in communications at Syracuse University. And then I decided to not to practice law. And then I went out to Silicon Valley and I hit that during gold rush. So I got to work with Steve Jobs, uh, Reed Hastings, who's the now CEO of Netflix, and he was the CEO of Netflix back then. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to work with all the big venture capital companies, Kleiner Perkins, Greylock, Benchmark Capital, I mean, and just tons of other people along the way. I got to Mark Cuban, um, when he was acquired at Yahoo, I was working right. with the team there. So it just was, you know, it goes on and on. So I was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. Unfortunate to be on the other side of that. But obviously the follow-up question would be, how was it working with Steve Jobs or Mark Cuban? But I want to go in a different direction. What was it like working with Reed Hastings of Netflix? Uh, you know, it was interesting because back then if Netflix they really didn't, I mean, they were just having trouble with like getting movies and doing everything. I mean, it's kind of a really fringe item. For sure. And I think he even back then saw the bigger picture, but it was a massive vision. And there was a lot of things they had to do and pivots and steps. And then companies like Blockbuster, who had, you know, a huge board of influencers, completely underestimated them and did not see the market. 
For sure. And For sure. Uh, I, I think that I actually got to work a little bit at Blockbuster doing some of the bankruptcy stuff towards the end. And I realized that, you know, one of the challenges for any leader is that you have to invest in yourself by doing personal development and professional development. For sure. You have to network and have a lot of conversations and you have to have people challenge your assumptions, do a lot of truth telling and give you feet hard feedback and set up those systems and processes because naturally they won't happen because people won't tell you. And I think people get lazy when they're successful at that level and rest on their beliefs and laurels and right. it changes, right? And right. you saw that because right, Block, Blockbuster could have bought Netflix for $10 million. Absolutely. And so that tells you all. And they started to try to mimic what Netflix was doing with they Blockbuster did. On Demand and they couldn't do it. And I worked with some of those people and it was just interesting that I don't even think they truly embraced it even when they were doing it because some of the people that were working on a blockbuster actually, in my opinion, are really smart, got it. And it was not for, I think, the lack of people working on it. I think it was just the lack of really everyone understanding it and really buying into it. And I was working with their CEO and even until like the last days, he was sort of under, I think, somewhat of delusion that they could turn this thing around. And I guess at a CEO, you have to be really positive, but I don't think that you can be delusional either. Everyone around you was looking at everyone getting laying off and less revenue coming in and right. bankruptcy. And you're like, okay, how? what do you see that I don't? And I don't believe you because now we're writing this down to the very bitter end. It just is interesting to be on both sides of it and really watch and see it because obviously that's a interesting perspective. So for sure. And you're so right about them kind of like seeing like they're just kind of flailing at the end because not only did they try to replicate Netflix, I think they also tried to replicate the success that Redbox was having with those vending machine totally uh, movies as well. So no, you're absolutely right about that. How's it going Startup Nation? From time to time moving forward, I'm just going to hop into the conversation really quickly and just kind of have a talk to you a little bit because there are some times where entrepreneurs say something so profound and so thoughtful and provide like such a great nugget that I kind of want to talk to you about it just a little bit to kind of get you to see how you can think about it in your business. So with that being said, Startup Nation, that's why I wanted to ask about Reed Hastings as opposed to Mark Cuban and Steve Jobs. I was pretty confident he was going to talk about not only the rise of Netflix, but probably the fall of some of the competitors. Now, much to my surprise, seems that he worked on Blockbuster and they even gave more value to his answer and so it makes me think about two things startup nation and i want you to think about these two things as well in your business number one are you in a space that's changing or not necessarily dying but changing or evolving if you will right and number two do you have the fortitude to move with that change you don't want to go by the wayside like a dinosaur do you but when we talk about our path to entrepreneurship when we talk about our businesses being able to adapt and evolve and move forward is a skill that you must have to be successful so as we listen to jason's content more i want you to think about that path i want you to think about that journey i want you to think about your business as you move forward as an entrepreneur. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Uh, let me ask you this, man. Who or what is, inspires you as an entrepreneur and why? You know, I love to contribute and help other people. Doing that and helping other people to have big visions, achieve them, is something that brings me 
a lot of joy and passion in life. And plus I'm cur- I'm very curious. I'm a lifelong learner and I spend, mm-hmm. I always have a new pet project that I'm working on the side. I'm learning, asking questions, doing something that there is no monetary payment for. It's just my zest for knowledge. And I think when you have a job like mine, it requires you to do that, which is a lot of work. And very few people are willing to put in that level of work and commitment to being at the cutting edge. So I would say that the in I think it's to help other people too who have the same mindset because then you can really create something that is successful and helps other people in whatever it might do. And then that to me is I think really kind of why we're here. Gotcha. I appreciate that, especially that part where you say we're here to help other people. I think a lot of people forget that part as they ascend, you know, up the corporate ladder or up their entrepreneurial journey and stuff like that. So I I, I definitely appreciate you sharing that for sure. Uh, Let me ask you this, man, because you gave a TED talk uh, last year in Wilmington, correct? Around August. Yeah. So, you know, uh, first of all, congratulations, because I think that's always awesome. But tell us about that entire process. Now, where did you learn from it? Did, and also, do you get penalized for getting outside of that red circle at all? Uh, well, no. I mean, <laughs> I, well, I think the cameras may have shown it at that point if I did, but I didn't. I was watching inside of it. But sure. what it really taught me is that if I were going to tell anyone about whether to do it or not now, I would really have to say you have to really think about how is that talk going to make you money. Understood. Because back five years ago, it was a branding thing because it was much more unique and now they're all over the place. And it's a tremendous amount of time and preparation in order to do that. So one of the things that I tried to do was initially really just do research and understanding with the different types of talks that people give. Okay. And how could I make one that would translate into the corporate world? Because if you look at most TED Talks, right, probably 90 some percent, and let's even just say the good ones, you get done at the end of it and you're like, this is awesome. But then what do you do with it? There's no tool, there's no process. The only one is to try to contact that person to then pay them to do that. But even then, they may not necessarily have a process built out to deliver what exactly it is that you wanted or they discussed, right? It's a big idea, but the problem with a big idea is that if there's not a strategy and tactics and process, it really doesn't do you any good. So I really thought about, okay, I need to do something. And this is even coming out of content creation. I need to find someone who's great at creating slides, but then create a slide for my TED Talk, but also do a corporate deck. And people don't think about that, right? But I was like, all right, well, I need to be able to put this in action afterwards or make whatever adjustments I need, but I'll have a lot of this stuff already done. And then I thought to myself, I looked through the types and I was like, you know, the one that is the least done is the how-to. And the reason it's the least done is that it has to be the most thought out because not only do you have to have a big idea, but now you have to think to yourself, okay, how can I translate this to someone else? And then how do I give them a tool that they can use to replicate and get the results that I'm talking about? And you have to be able to do that in either 10, 12, or 18 minutes, depending on how long your talk is. And that's extremely hard to do. So it took me a couple years to figure this stuff out. And I spent a lot of research. Like I probably spent about four or five months 
just doing research and I was trying to figure out what problem I wanted to solve exactly because I didn't really know. So I just did a lot of research on corporate America and problems people were having and it led down a lot of roads that were dead ends. And then I started to look on the team dynamic and how do you build the highest performing teams. And I found a problem that really hadn't been solved. I, then I found, okay, well that's great. And it required me then to do a lot of research, interview people, right. and then come up with a practical solution, which was really hard as well. So, and then I had to find a speaking coach and I decided to find a speaking coach that not only knew TEDx's, but I was like, I wrote down on a piece of paper, I was like, okay, if I could write a dream person up, right? Mm -hmm. Who would that person be? And one of the qualities and characteristics was someone that was actually producing a TED conference itself. Because right. that way they would actually know everything because they're the ones doing it. And if it were a really good one, then that would be extremely helpful in the process. And so I looked out and found someone that had those characteristics. So I worked backward from the end instead of just trying to go out and ask people, oh, do you know a really good speaking coach? Because then I had no idea how to tell someone better than another one, right? I mean, right. how would you know, right? I mean, and especially if you've never done one before, uh, you wouldn't know. And most people are not doing a 10, 12, 18 minute talk that's this short and succinct in the way and this style doing it. So I did that and then it just took a lot of practicing. And so it was just a, it was a tremendous amount of time. And it was a great forcing function to create, you know, this game I've created and a process I was doing. So that was helpful. But if I didn't, wasn't doing that, in my opinion, it probably would have been a waste of time because there's a lot more things I could have done for branding rather than doing the talk itself. And now so few of them get on TED.com and there's a randomness that goes with it mm. that it's not just that you delivered a great speech. It's you delivered a great speech and someone else thought you delivered a great speech that matters who's in charge of that. Right, right. right. So that's very random and out of your control. And therefore, I would not want to be reliant on that. And as well, you know, when you're looking at TEDs, I did a lot of research on, you know, the types of different events, right? Because they're, they're, they're tiered. I found that there were the top tier ones that you had to have a really good speaking resume. Absolutely. And if you didn't, you weren't. And then there was the next level down that were hard to get into, and there weren't that many of those, but they had high production quality. So the one I picked was because they had a camera crew and they had like four different cameras. So the production value of the video was sure. way higher than other people. And I thought that that was significant when you look at other people's videos that are straight on shots or only one or two. This one has multi angles in it, right? Which is way better overall. In, in doing it. So, you know, and so there was a lot of looking and researching and there's no uh, depository or repository or list of these TED Talks and how to submit, where to submit, the cameras, everything else. Like you have to go manually and literally go look conference by conference and doing this, inquire and build your own list. So it required me to do this all manually, which took a ridiculous amount of time. So I tell this to everyone because it's like that I mean, I can't imagine, I mean, I, I think that I computed how much time it took for me to do this whole thing from researching the end of it. And I wanna say it was somewhere between 400 and 500 hours I spent 
Wow. That's crazy because the thing is, like, we have a lot in Startup Nation who uh, are, you know, they, they're kind of similar to what you do, right? They're life coaches, they're business coaches. And you talked about it being a branded thing. It, like, TED Talk seems to be like the the creme de la creme. It's like you, get, you do a TED Talk and then boom, you're on your way. And so I really wanted to share, wanted you to share that process. So I really appreciate that. And here's the problem. If you spend less time, for sure. So I will give you an example. So there was someone in during my, that gave a TED talk mm-hmm. and they were doing something on culture, right? I was doing something in team building, but okay. I had some people that I had along with me and that stayed and listened to some of the, listened to the rest of the day. And he, and he gave, I, I thought was a really good speech. But if you look at the detail and the level of research and the stuff I put on mine, the conclusion from all my friends, and they proactively said it to me that they they, they could tell the much more work and depth mine came. Plus it was a how-to, which required you to have a better understanding of the material and being able to translate that to an audience in the time that you had. Right. So the problem is if you don't do that level of work, it really stands out. And especially if someone else who does something similar to you that day, does it, it's going to really sort of deposition your own talk amongst other people. So, you know, I mean, I would say to someone, I don't know, you don't have to spend the time I spent, but I probably think in order to do this, it's probably gonna require around a 200 hour mark in order for you to do this well and practice it, you know, and that's not including the travel that requires and going somewhere and paying for that yourself, right? Sure, um, for so, sure. So, you know, and you could do some locally if you're fortunate, but a lot of people are not in a place where, and there is something about going somewhere else and doing it too that I think is also really good rather than doing it in your backyard. There's some positives that probably option opportunities, but I also think there's ones for going somewhere else. So I think unless you're willing to commit that kind of time, I would tell people skip it. Cause if you try to cut the corners, it won't be what you want. Startup Nation, let's pause here for a second because what Jason was talking about is really profound. Now, a lot of you think about doing content marketing, whether it be a podcast or a blog or even speaking engagements, right? And so we have been under the impression for a long time that TED Talks was like the creme de la creme. You make a TED Talk and you arrive. But Jason has just shared with us really that maybe that, you know, if unless you can really monetize that TED Talk or at the very least what he's saying is, make it lead to some type of revenue generating activity, then maybe just simply being on a TED Talk is not the right thing for you. Look, if you're able to make it to where you can generate some new business and you can use that as in content marketing, you should go for it. But I think it's one of those things where, and what ultimately Jason's point is that sometimes we do things that are so spectacular and then we just sit back and wait for something to happen. Startup Nation, understand that like sometimes when you have like a a ted talk engagement or some type of speaking engagement or content marketing you still need to do a little bit of you know work moving forward with that content right you got to put a a jetpack on that bad boy right so when you think about jason's answer about the ted talk question think about how you provide value think about how your content can not only provide value for your audience, but also become a revenue generating activity. Uh, now, in that TED talk, you you talk about you know Jim. Jim is like the head of this, the big CEO of this company, or whatever the case may be, and he yeah. kind of has like this split personality, if you will. On one hand, at home, he's like the philanthropist, you know, fun loving dad, husband, wife, wherever case, you know, husband, 
or whatever the case may be. But at work, he's like this, I don't know, this drone, this person who just kind of comes to do their job or they're the, the you know, the take no answer, take uh, no for an answer approach, the hard ass or whatever the case may be. How yep. does that happen? Uh, how, do, how does Jim become that Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde to where the philanthropist, fun-loving person doesn't translate to the workplace? Well, it's because the people that are leading organizations today in general, and I also think this probably translates to the human resources function. Gotcha. The people in charge of building culture don't understand today that there is no work-life balance. It's one and the same. Gotcha. And because people now are not near as social outside of work in their emotion, their social and their communication skill sets are very low and they're not as well developed as they have in the past. In fact, the research says they're the worst they've been in history. Mm. People are finding more of their relationships at work and they're taking more of their problems to work because they don't have outlets like they used to. And so the problem is corporations today who believe that oh, it's business and whatever's going on in your personal life or you as a person don't matter, they're missing the big picture. I also think that, you know, Brene Brown's one of my favorite authors and business authors and authors. And I think her books are the only books I give all my clients because I I think by far they're the most impactful of anything out there by far. I don't think there's even a, a close second. And I've, I read a lot and I spend a lot of time dissecting things because it's the vulnerability that's the key. And it's the self-awareness that's the key. And if you look at self-awareness as, you know, it's 10 to 15% are self-aware according to research. Mm-hmm. And a woman I met, who's like the number one researcher, her name's Tasha Urich, like, and that's the data she came up with. And there's other data from people. But the problem is, 95% of people think they're self-aware. And if you go, the higher you go up in the food chain, so they did a research of, uh, or, or research on 5,000 executives and they asked themselves to rate themselves in 20 different category, leadership categories like communication, collaboration, et cetera. And right. then they had people that were working for them also rate them. And what happened was out of the 19 out of 20 categories, right? And this is across 5,000 people. So it's not right. just one. Out of the 19 out of 20 categories, senior executives overrated themselves significantly compared to what other people viewed them, right? It was like 70 to 30. Like they give themselves a 70 rating and people give a 30. It's insane how far it is. 19 out of 20 categories. And the problem is, is that people aren't getting feedback. There's not a lot of truth telling and they aren't asking and they aren't curious and developing themselves, right? So when you go on that and I see the next part of it, last part of it is that everyone has a business plan for 2019. Right. How many people have their own development plan? Not people plan for the company, which is not the same thing because that's like an overarching thing that is, but it's not per person. Right. I don't know any company that does that. I really don't. I mean, like, in where are they learning from and how are they learning all this stuff, right? I mean, maybe you're looking at someone like Google and some places that are outliers like that, but that's, again, very few. And I guess one other thing I'd bring up, too, that I find is really uh, not happening is that people will have company values, but they won't have them operationalized. And by that, I mean, they'll have something like, this is what teamwork 
like our teamwork is this a you know whatever the sentence is and then underneath it they'll have uh maybe three examples of what is teamwork embodied in this organization right teamwork is you actively ask your coworkers if they need help and then follow through and help them well if you have that you then have to evaluate people compensate them and hold them accountable for it and you have to do it not only downwards, but upwards. And you just see that. I mean, Brene Brown's last book, Dare to Lead, she says she sees it in maybe 10% of the organization she works in. But I have a feeling that's only in probably divisions and with people, not yeah. organization-wide. So if you don't have that, company values are worthless, right? And, right, and, and you don't define behaviors and how people have to interact with each other and what's acceptable and what's not. So a lot of the problems that are happening, like with CBS just got sued by another, or an actress came out and said, oh, these things happened to her for sexual harassment and there's right. details. And people are like, well, how can this happen? And I'm like, because they don't have operational values that anyone's hold accountable for. So then people just do whatever the hell they want because right. there's no enforcement. For sure. Well, let me ask you this, kind of a follow-up question, if you will. So let's say, you know, talk about CBS, but we also think of, of companies like a Wells Fargo if you will, right? And all the, the, the things they've been kind of going through a little bit. Now, obviously, one could just say, hey, they have a PR problem, but it, uh, it seems to suggest that maybe there's instructional or, or structural problems inside of the culture and leadership. You know, Definitely. So you see, right. So when you see a Wells Fargo, what are some of the things that kind of stick out or red flags that kind of stick out? from the outside looking in? Well, it's kind of like the PR problem is the leaf on the tree, not the root. For right? sure, so for the sure. Problem, the root of the problem is, is that people are not doing enough self-awareness things and they aren't really understanding what their real blind spots are and what are the patterns that are sabotaging their own success. And I think the problem stems from that even the people that are helping them don't know how to do that really well. And yeah. let me explain. So I had a CEO about eight months ago who was in a larger company and came to me and th this company was doing well, but he knew the executive team could be doing better, but he wasn't really sure how to go about doing it. So I was like, okay, great. And I interviewed his executive team to get their feedback on how it was to work with the CEO and their own ideas. And I had like a five, 10 meeting, five, 10 meeting, meeting with each person. Like I, I kept it super brief. And what I got out of it was that their collective feeling was the person leading the company didn't listen very well. He didn't know them personally. Mm. He really wasn't empowering them overall. They felt like they were afraid to take risks, right, in doing all this stuff. So what would happen in most organizations and what most people do is they do like a 360 degree review or in an essence like this, they would go back to the person and they would try to increase their self-awareness by giving them this feedback. Well, here's the problem when you do that with a person. So if you go into a person like that and you give them the feedback, you now have to look at how our brains work. Our brains are wired for survival and they're wired for survival of being negative to keep us safe. They're not wired for happiness or growth and there are chemicals that go along with that that are released to induce and enhance that 
And so what happens is when you give people negative feedback like that, you now tell them that they are broken and need to get fixed, right? Well, the problem with that is, is that their survival brain come, kicks in, right? Back from caveman right, days. Exactly. And if you were broken, if you were told you were broken and need to get fixed, you'd get kicked out of the group and wild animals would eat you or you would die from some <laughs> other thing, right? right. So it's life or death. Right. It's fight or flight. For sure. So what happens then when you tell them, they will say things like, oh my God, the people working, maybe I overestimated their abilities. Maybe they aren't that smart. Maybe they aren't that committed, right? They'll offload the blame and not take accountability. And it's the first reaction for people almost every single time that they'll start to do this. Or underneath the breath and the back of their head, they're gonna say, I'm gonna get those sons of bitches <laughs> telling other people that right. I need to get fixed. I'm telling you, I know that I've done this on five or 600 people right now, and right. it's always the same. So you can't do that, but that is what 99% of people do. And there's huge resistance. So when you give people that feedback from there, and you give them a plan, will they do it? Many of them will, but they'll get incremental benefit from them because there'll be resistance on it because they will feel very negative and badly about it because other people are thinking this. And now they're walking around and they know all the people who are giving this feedback are thinking these things, right? So that, that it doesn't work. You're not seeing exponential progress, right? You aren't seeing hockey stick like increases in what people are able to do. You're seeing incremental, which is significantly less, right? right. So what I did in that instance was I took that information because it is useful to have. Right. And then I started to ask questions to them because here's about his childhood and how he grew up. And before people think, oh, this is some psychology thing, realize that people are pattern oriented and their patterns create their thoughts, which create their behaviors and actions, which then create the blueprint of how they see the world, which then cements their identity and how they act. Mm. And if you don't look at what is the root, which is the patterns, you cannot create massive behavioral change super quick, right? And what a therapist does is a much slower model that they get to this point. But usually it'll take a year or two years for people to get underneath this and create the change. And they're not business people either. So right, that, right. that also creates a challenge for the people to actually implement it. But so in this instance, I went back and asked, okay, well tell me about childhood growing up and using a household of six people total. And then I said to him, so how did you get mom and dad's attention? Tell me the first time you remember you needed to get their attention to do something for you. How did you do it? So he told me a story that he needed them to do something, go to some grade school event. And he was sitting at a dinner table and he elbowed his brother and sister that were sitting either side of them so hard they fell off their chairs. And then he yelled over the table, his parents heard him and they said, yes. And I asked him a question, I said, do you think looking back that there would have been another way for you to get your parents' attention and to get them to say yes. And his answer to me was no, wow. right? No. So what he learned at that point was not listening got him what he wanted. Right. And that if he did listen, he wouldn't get what he wanted, right? And I asked other questions around that and found out that that was a piece of his success, right? Mm -hmm. So now when I approach him, I say to him, what I would say to anyone, look, 
What I'm about to tell you is a pattern. It's like a computer program, a one or zero. It's neither good nor bad it is what it is. Right. And right now, what's happening is not listening has got you very far. But now it's sabotaging your success and it's cratering your organization and the people around you are feeling that as well. So you have a choice. You can be right or you can be happy, successful, and fulfilled. What is it that you wanna do? And the person like Clockwork will say, Jason, I didn't realize I was doing that. That was never my intent. I wouldn't want people to feel like that. Right. And because I opened a doorway to realize that I presented an objective piece of information that was neither good nor bad. Where the 360 review is telling someone it's negative and you're bad and you need to be broken, right? And you need to be fixed and I'm gonna help fix you. Well, I didn't present it like that. I gave them a choice and I presented a pattern. And then I said, okay, we're gonna do some exercises. And I said, I'm gonna make it simple because for most people, these are one to two degree changes. So what did I do? I gave a post-it note. I wrote down things like, listen more. When you're in your weekly executive team meeting, ask questions and talk last. So you get everyone's opinion before you share theirs. Get to know people on a personal basis. Go down and talk to them and get to know them who they are. And there were a few things that I said every day, listen, look at this post-it note and do these things. You don't need to do anything else. That's it, right? Pretty simple, not really that complex, right. not hard to implement. And within 30 days, it was life and business changing and everyone around him noticed it, right? And he got evidence quickly that it was working. So now you're more willing to take leaps of faith to do other types of work, right? That right. people give you, right? Leadership, management, communication, collaboration, but you have to eliminate the biggest blind spots and the biggest hurdles, because at some point, your skills and ability, and everyone listening to this, this will happen to you, it's guaranteed, it's impossible for it not to happen. Your skills and ability will hit a ceiling. In that ceiling, you will be able to go no further than that. And the only way is to eliminate the blind spots and patterns that are sabotaging your success. And the challenge is they were all created when you were growing up or some adult level trauma that happened to you at some point. And you have to address that at every new level that you get to. And when you do, you can make exponential progress, right? Right. And you can do things because then when you get evidence, right, what happens? Then you feel like, oh my God, if this works, what's the next thing? And you take leaps of faith and you're not attached to the landing. You're doing it because you know it'll work and then you're more willing to pivot, which is a requirement to being successful because very few people ever are able to do the first thing right. They almost always have to pivot several times in the process, right? I mean, it right. makes sense, but people don't see this because it's about their self-awareness and understanding themselves and also the landscape and the people around them. And you can't do that if you're wearing blinders. And we all are until we remove them and realize what's going on. Absolutely. And I appreciate you sharing that, Jason, because like you said, you know, when, when you talk about uh, that gentleman started to get that that level of success, they're willing to pivot towards other things. And I think that's, you know, very important for not just entrepreneurs, but just everybody in general, even if you aren't on the, in that C-suite or whatever the case may be, anyway. if you're willing to, to expose yourself to other things, you can evolve more as a person. So I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, I mean, it's anyone. I mean, entrepreneurs going to have to do that because anyone starting a business has got their own blind spots and sabotaging their own success, right? Absolutely. I mean, you need to figure out what that is and get out of your own way. Because I believe with most people, the problem of not being successful 
isn't that it is that it is like they're not good enough or they're not smart enough or whatever for it's themselves getting in their own way now it's also grit tenacity willing to work hard and stay the course but even if they do that if you don't eliminate and remove and replace the things that are holding you back the most i mean your progress is going to be significantly stunted so jason you know, like i said you you coach you know executives entrepreneurs all over the place right but i want to know what did you learn from like your worst boss teacher or mentor you ever had you know i i always learned that you just you have to dig deeper Gotcha. Right? I think you just have to look in your own accountability mirror because it's easy to try to act like I want to be right and, and say that, but being right won't get you where you want because there's a cost of doing that all the time. And there are many ways to get to some place. And often when we get tunnel vision thinking, it's never the right answer. Jason, you know, your, for what you do, yours is probably considered more like a B2B or business to business type of a of model, if you will. And we have a lot of entrepreneurs in Startup Nation who kind of share that same thing. Now, you've done work with Google and Blue Cross Blue Shield and Southwest Airlines. So I guess my question is, you know, that traditional marketing of like, you know, uh, it's not like you sell cupcakes or hamburgers, right? Where it kind of sells itself. You kind of have to explain to these businesses exactly what you do. So how do you market to those other businesses or those executives or people in the C-suite to say, hey, Jason Troy is here to help. How do you get the word out that you're here to help? Well, you know, that's doing speaking opportunities. It's creating, you know, the game I've done. It's getting on podcasts. I mean, it's doing a myriad of things. For sure. Right? Because not only do you have to do things like that, but you have to get to people at the right time when they're in the time frame when they really want to take action. Absolutely. Because Generally, when people are going to come to me is when they are stuck right. or they've had some calamity hit. There's very, I mean, I have very, very, very few people that come to me when things are going well. So yeah. they have to be in that mindset in order to do all those things. And I think the corporate market's especially harder because then, you know, a lot of people are just slow, right? I mean, compared right. to like, you know, as a side issue, like an entrepreneur gets more why you need to build relationships and network with people. You For get sure. something in corporate America, no matter what their level is, and they're they're not near as good at doing it. And the commitment level isn't there. That's absolutely true. Right. Right. So I think a lot of it is the same thing when it comes to personal development and growth, because it's not a priority for them because they don't get what I'm talking to you about. Right. No one's put it like that. And the way that they go about doing it, just they're usually coaching people when they feel like they need help rather than doing it just because they need to grow. They're not being proactive in their own personal development. Yeah. And, and organizations aren't doing it either and instilling sure. that in them. And I think also Curiosity is one of the most undervalued qualities we have in society as a whole. So I don't think people think like that in general. And there are very few people who get that. So the addressable market, although it seems high, isn't that high because you have to hit people at the right time with the right message in order to get a business that is going to scale over time. And, you know, I think the other problem, too, is in today's world, frankly, there's a lot of noise. And in order to break through, it's going to take you a long time. 
right? I mean, people come to me and talk about starting a business and I say, you know what? It's probably gonna take you seven to 10 years mm. because in order to get everything done that you have to, it is gonna require a lot of work and there's a lot of noise. And in order for you to build out, test things, um, and really separate yourself out from the competition, it's gonna require that much work. And I think seven's probably on the early side of things. I think it's probably closer to 10 realistically. So if you're not willing to stay the course, don't do it. Gotcha, thank you for sharing that. Does that make sense? No, that makes complete sense. It absolutely does. Uh, so let me ask you this, and this is along the lines of like, you know, creating content and stuff like that. You have a podcast, the Executive Breakthroughs Podcast. Tell us a little bit about that and what you hope people can get from your show. Well, I've done one season of it now, and okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna definitely going to do more. But one of the things I tried to do in it was I found that there were shows that did, definitely talked about people's story arcs, right, and what they learned. I tried to go in super in-depth with people and get down to really the nuggets and get down to the points where their breakdowns were happening. For sure. And their roughest days and what exactly happened and, and taking me through those moments. And I spent a lot of time researching each guest. Like I would do as much research as I could possibly do. Like some guests are probably five, six hours I would do before I would go right. and prepare. And the reason was, is I tried to do more of an Oprah style with people than it, as well as doing business knowledge. So it required a different level of work and for the first season, I went and flew to people and I interviewed them in person. Uh, that was also really different to do that as well. So it was definitely uh, different. I learned a lot. It was definitely challenging. Um, and I'm glad that I did it to learning it. I think it's hard for people to replicate that because of the time. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think I haven't really done another one yet because I've had other things to do with this you know, including this TED talk and other things that I've been working on. It just, I haven't had it, but it's uh it was a great experience to have. For sure. And Startup Nation, if you like the content that you hear here, here and here, and you want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to the Executive Breakthroughs podcast and you can get that on any of your favorite podcast platforms that you'd like to listen to podcasts on. So Jason, really quickly, actually a quick follow-up to what you just said. Well, actually, throughout this entire, you know, uh, conversation that we've been having, I kind of get the feeling that you're a very conscientious, thorough person, right? When you talk about, you know, the, the, the hours you spent in preparing for the TED Talk and even the hours you spent in researching your guests before you bring them on their show. Is that something that, you know, you've always kind of had, you know, innately in you or did you develop that over time? Where does that come from? I mean, I just think I always had that. Gotcha. Because I think, and I think the problem, and I, here's the reason why I spend time doing that now is because people tend to gloss over that. For sure. If they look like the Facebook news feed of ESPN highlight and they don't really understand what was behind that, right? And let me give you an example. So one of my clients, uh, I asked him and he's pretty, really successful. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, how many... He was telling me he's doing another startup company and some of the people didn't really use every dollar like it was their own. Gotcha. And so I, I talked to him about speaking to the team and sharing his own personal experiences about his darkest days when he started his company out of his bedroom and left a really big job. And, you know, he told me the story about how he went to a stop and shop, like it was a 7-Eleven. Right. And for, I believe it was a year, every day for lunch, 
seven days a week. He had three tacos and a large side Pepsi. Okay. And that was it. He was all I could afford. And he lived in a rat trap and he had his rabbit ears were a coat hanger. And he said to me, remember his electricity got turned off and he had to go get it turned back on and he had to go down to electric company and stand in line. Right. And I mean, it just, and the people that he was around and everything else, he was like, you know, just a year and a half later, he's making a quarter million dollars at one of the biggest commercial real estate firms and just, you know, on his way up. Right. And I, I asked him, I said, so how many people have you told that story to ever? And he told me, eh, probably a handful. And yeah. how many have asked? And he was like, well, really no one. And I think the problem is we don't ask the right questions and we don't ask people about what it really took. And so we don't really understand right. like that journey of where someone goes. I was just watching this documentary on Netflix. I only watched the first 15 minutes and it's insane. It's this guy, Ronnie Coleman, who's uh, the most eight time Mr. Olympia and won more Olympias than anyone else. And okay. he has work ethic. Mm. And what he had to do, and he talked about like how he wanted to squat 800 pounds. And he started at age 30 at 600. And he spent the next 10 years wow. perfecting that craft along with his bodybuilding. And at age 40, he was able to do it. Imagine that work ethic to get to that point. Everyone just looks at, oh, he's squatted 800 pounds. But when you really get to the details, you truly appreciate what exactly that that would take, whether you'd want to do it or not, or whether you think it's crazy or whether anything else, regardless of that thought, it took 10 years for him to do that. And he talked about it like, well, yeah, because your genetics and everything else, and there's only so fast you can go. So you just got to stay the course and you'll get there as though anyone could do it. And I think like the details around this stuff is so critical that if people out there are listening, you got to ask the information to really understand what's going on. Because if you just ask the top line question, you're missing the real meat and you're missing the gems and you're missing the people that are around and what's really going on with them. And then that's hard to build great relationships with people when you don't, because that's part of caring and getting to know people. Right, right. Thank you for sharing that. And that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's one of the reasons why we started this show is because there's, as you say, there's value in the journey. Matter of fact, as you put it, that that's where the real value is. is it in is. So I definitely appreciate that. And I hope you caught that startup nation, you know, as you, build your businesses as you go up the corporate ladder appreciate the journey that you're on because the journey really is more valuable maybe even more valuable than the destination depending on who you ask so yeah because here's the thing tony robbins said something that i think is really is spot on is that he said you progress is what makes people happy not the destination absolutely right and an example would be i work for one of my clients uh, some of the people that work inside the organization owned franchises and they were buying up the franchises. And some people were getting wire transfers after selling their businesses for 10, 20, $30 million. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting. They were excited about it and super happy when they found out it was going to happen and they were going to sell it. But the day the wire transfer came over, you would think that they were all at a funeral. Right. Right. And, and why is that? Well, now who are they? Now the same people that they, you know, they were working the job, like a corporate job and now calling people and running a business, now that's gone. And what do you do with yourself? And you think, well, we got all this free time. 
But that's not how someone like that rationalizes. And now they're thinking about it. And you're thinking, well, they got all that money. I wish it were me. Man, right. I'd be happy if I had that. No, you wouldn't. Because you're not thinking about the money. You're thinking about the loss of the people and connection. Because connection and belonging are why we're here on this earth, not to make money. Right. That, again, is the leaf on the tree and not the root. So like, that's the key. And when you start to understand this is how you will be much more successful in your own journey. Absolutely. So we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. How you like being on the Startup Life so far, Jason? Love it. Awesome. All right, Startup Nation. So I hope you're getting great value from Jason's content, but we got to pay a few bills. Once again, my name is Dominic Lawson, and you're listening to The Startup Life. business owner the startup life reach is growing wouldn't you like your business to grow with it reach out to us to advertise on the startup life you can reach us at 901-857-4818 or you can email me at dominic at askalsolutions.com i mean don't get me wrong like this is a great music to have break on but wouldn't this break sound a lot better with the same music but your business being advertised on it need more content from the startup life you say you can now sign up for the startup life all access pass on the binge podcast network's patreon page there is exclusive content written by yours truly video content where i share even more of my business philosophies and whatever crazy content i can think of out of that crazy head of mine and at only five dollars a month yeah five dollars a month this is more content for you startup nation to really get ahead of your competition so instead of upsizing that meal at your favorite fast food joint you can now invest in yourself on your path to entrepreneurship click the link in the show notes to sign up all right startup nation so let's continue so jason on your website jasontroy.com it says that you offer coaching in many forms, right? So ultimately, you know, when you have your clients, what can they expect from Jason Troy and the coaching that you provide? Well, I mean, it depends on what's going on, right? If it's an individual coaching session, I create a blueprint for someone to get where they want to go. And one of the things as we do that is look for a financial ROI as well as an ROI in terms of their own development, happiness, and fulfillment. Because at the end of the day, you've got to get somewhat of a return. And my goal target for any person coming in is to three to five X financial return on whatever they pay me. And obviously many instances has gone significantly higher. Like I had a woman come to me literally three months ago from today and she didn't like her job. She had some other issues and we ended up 
she just accepted a job two weeks ago. So that's less than three months. And she just got a $40,000 pay raise. So mm. went from like 85 to 125,000 and loves her job. And there's tons more opportunity. So like, that's, you know, and you have to do that because then the second step is doing an internal look to look at blind spot self-awareness. And then you iterate between that and external issues, meaning what are the things externally that you need to do to get better? Um, what relationships you need to do? Like what all, all those things that you need to add up, whether whatever it might be. And then you just iterate back and forth between coaching action items and getting things done if it's an individual, right? If it's a group of people and we focus on what the group problem is as well as help people, you know, work on their own self-awareness so they can get together. And then if it's like workshops, obviously those are targeted around a management leadership things, or if it's doing some team building or team performance, like I have my game and I'll do a workshop around that. You know, I do speaking for corporate events, internal things, offsites, and then, you know, conferences and other events. And those are topic dependent or what's going on. Now, let me ask you this, Jason, but you know, so, you know, you give one-on-one coaching, you know, group uh, coaching, team building exercises, speaking engagement all across the board. What's your favorite? Like, okay, I'm sorry. Which one do you have the most fun with? You know, it's really all of them because they're all different. Okay. Okay. I mean, I think it's, it's it each, each has its own significant upsides and challenges. And I think it's important to be able to do all of them mm-hmm. because they feed off of each other and they're all their own craft and they all have to be honed and they all require a certain amount of work beyond the content, but also the content demands of each of them are different as well and how you have to go about it. And right. I love problem solving. I love putting puzzles together, right? I care about people. And so these things all really, you know, fit together um, for me in a way that works the best. So, and I'm, I'm actually going to have a product soon that I'll be selling or two of those that I'm working on with a friend that should be finished probably any day now, which is also exciting because I never really had one and I wanted to work with someone to do it mm-hmm. the right way and to do it the right way for marketing and promotions other than just putting it up on my own website because there's challenges with that. For sure. You mentioned, you know, like different delivery systems to how you uh, bring about the professional development and stuff like that with corporations and stuff like that. So I want to talk to you about your, your card game, Cards Against Modernity, right? Yes. And the reason I am so fascinated by this because I'm always curious that, A, how you, came, how you come up with stuff like that, but two, more importantly, I'm always fascinated by how, you know, when we talk about professional development, right, you, t- you hear the typical, like, trust falls and stuff like that, right? But I'm always curious in how people come up with clever ways with their delivery system to come up with different ways to deliver that content. So how did you come up with the card game? And, you know, uh, tell us, well, tell us about the game and how you came up with it. Well, it's part of my TED talk. And one of the things Mm -hmm. that I found is that, so for every one of the people I work with, and really, obviously, everyone on the phone, you, the key is, is how do you build the highest performing teams? And the way that I define a team is the people that you manage, that you work for, report into, the colleagues you're working for, and anyone externally, meaning clients, prospects, any third party, right? Right. You can maximize your performance and their performance and engagement in those environments. You will crush it. 
Now, it, it, still, there's grit for marketing the rest of this, but you have the system set up for it all to happen, right? right. And, that, and that is the key. And if you look at an organization, right, any company, the thing that always mystified me was why is there a top 1% team? Why is it that you can't get the rest of the people operating at a significantly high level? Why are some people falling behind? And I always feel like whenever you can't figure out an answer and it's not one plus one equals two, it's mythology right. and it's people right. being lazy. It's people mm -hmm. not digging because end of the day, team performance should be one plus one equals two. And if people don't want to do it, then it's more of, I don't want to do it and I'm not committed and I don't have the grit and determination. Well, then you show people the door because that you can't teach that to someone who doesn't have it and Absolutely. is not willing to do those types of things. But the other parts of it, you can. So as I started to read books and look at stuff, I found that people, when they talk about team performance and culture performance, it's very squishy. And that's why a lot of people like, oh, culture and the rest of this stuff. Yeah. It's because it's not operationalized, right? And I use that word as choice because it should be one plus one equals two. It should be a supply chain, a manufacturing plant. You should be able to do something and get out something else. And if you cannot, then there's a problem. And so I felt to myself, okay, this is a problem because I got I, all these people, they're dependent on their ecosystem to be successful. And if they can't make that system successful, it's way harder and that's way harder for me. So I started to do research and some of the things I came across was, I looked at research Google did called Project Aristotle. And in 2012, Google set out a two-year project and they hired Harvard researchers and other researchers from Stanford to come in and understand what levers they needed to pull to create the highest performing individuals globally. How do you hire for them? How do you promote them? How do you retain them? What are the characteristics and qualities, right? And they thought it would be, you know, education level, background, everything else. And right. what's interesting is none of that. Hmm. They found out the one quality and characteristics that was found in every high performing team, right? And every high performing team they were looking at, people were, uh, either outperforming their goals or selling like more in the sales mode by 17% and they were getting lauded by Google executives twice as often for extraordinary work. So right. these high performing individuals did significant amount for their bottom line that they wanted to replicate and they found the one characteristic and quality every single team found globally, Alaska, I mean any country, any state, in, you know, Asia, Europe, South America with psychological safety. Gotcha. And you're thinking like, what is that? Right. And I first looked at that word and I didn't really know what it meant myself. And it's broken down into three parts. It is one, it is knowing people on a deep personal level. It is knowing who they are, where they came from. And it's not necessarily being friends with them, but it is knowing the same information that someone's best friends would know about. The second part is they took risk differently. They looked at risk more objectively. So what I mean by that is that the problem in most companies and what goes on is people say, oh yeah, we like, we love risk, take risks and do this. But then you do four great things and you do one thing that's poor and your identity is wrapped up in the thing that's poor, right? You're only as good in sales as they said as your last deal. Right. Well, that doesn't work, right? You have to model what the Navy SEALs do and after every mission they come back, and they ask several questions. They ask questions, what was our intended results? What are our actual results? What did we do well? What didn't we do well? And what do we take from this moving forward? And they do it in a very objective manner. There is no emotional thing, there's no failure. They do it even when they're highly successful. 
because they committed to doing better, better every single mission. And that is why they are incredible, right? right. It's not because necessarily they're all the smartest people in the world, right? They could be incredibly smart, right? I'm not saying right. those people are not, but right. they're dedicated to objectively putting that information in. And then they do the next, they do it from there. There's a book called The CEO Next Door, and they interview and they have a catalog, I think, of 20,000 CEOs that they've worked with. And the CEOs that use the word failure talking about their experiences were twice as often they got fired than the people who did it. Hmm. So when you get emotionally attached to it and you make it about you, the person, you then create a low performing environment. And the third part of it is just asking clarifying questions. What happens a lot is people just don't know the answer. They just don't know. And then if you ask clarifying questions, it means you're taking the information, you're analyzing it, you're thinking about it, and you'll understand it better. You'll be able to process it. And that is helpful because you might actually make the process or, or improve the project or event or whatever it is you're working on. So it's about deep personal relationships. It's about risk taking and it is about asking questions, right? And so what happened from there is I started to really look at trust and how do you build high levels of trust? Because the, the building extremely high levels of trust is what keeps the fabric of society together. And every great relationship we have personally or professionally is based on trust. And if you look at trust, you can look at different qualities. It's, it's caring, it's reliability, it's sincerity, and it's competency. Those are the four parts. And caring by far is the most important because we've all known people in our life that we have cared about but have not been sincere, but we keep them around or they're not reliable, they don't show up on time. Right. We don't keep people in our life that are super smart. They don't care about us at all, right? They're there for some reason. We work with them, but we're not hanging out with them. They're not part of our inner circle. So the key thing on trust is how do we get people to care about us? Well, the key is and how you do that is to be vulnerable. And vulnerability is the key to skyrocketing trust. So if you can skyrocket vulnerability, you will skyrocket trust. The challenge with vulnerability a lot of times is it's very situational. It's like you get a health scare. Well, that doesn't happen except when it does. You have to have a hard conversation with someone. Well, that only happens when the hard conversation happens. You have a difficult event or something that you have to go do with people. Well, it's situational. But the part of it that isn't is the self-disclosure part. That's true. You can share things with other people and you do that. Everyone here has done that. And let me tell you how you've done that. One, everyone on this, everyone listening to this has met someone in their life within the first five or 10 minutes and you have felt like you've known them all your life. You're like, wow, that person, like I totally get it and they get me, right? And what happened is if we had a video of it is that someone started to be vulnerable, right? And what be, doing that means is you are telling someone unconsciously, it's safe to share with me because if it wasn't, I wouldn't have shared with you. So then what happens is you escalate that super fast. So in essence, that first conversation is what it'll take people to have 20 or 30 conversations, mm -hmm. right? So, and the other part of it, we've all been on a great team, right? We've all been on a great team. It's been fantastic, whether it was a school team, uh, a work team, some event, some organization we belong to where we felt like we were part of something bigger, we accomplished something great, whatever that might be. And we were very emotionally attached to the people around us, right? And that emotion is key because that emotion is the gateway 
to vulnerability. So I found that the way that you could do this would be to ask questions. And I found this research by Professor Arthur Aaron back in 1997. He was doing this research on how to find interpersonal closeness between people. And part of it was how do we get people to fall in love? And one of the premises I was reading that he had, and I'm paraphrasing this, but is that, you know, he wanted to find how can we make best friends like snapping your finger. Right. And, you know, obviously if you tell it to people, it'll be like, okay, that's a joke. Because how would that ever be possible? Well, I'm going to tell you how it is. So he, one of the experiments he did was he got a group of graduate students, 54 of them together. He paired them together and they, he made sure that they were complete strangers. So the only information they knew about the other person before sitting down across the table from was their name that they told each other uh, when they were sitting down. So then they asked each other 36 questions over 45 minutes. And those questions were very vulnerable. Like one of the questions was, tell me three things that you like about. Well, that's pretty hard to tell a complete stranger when the first conversation you ever had was the one you just have right now. Right. But what's incredible, at the end of 45 minutes, and they surveyed them before and after, 30% of the people rated that relationship with a complete stranger as the closest relationship in their life. Wow. But get this, the closest relationship right. in their life. Exactly. And they replicated this dozens of times and geographies and everything else. And so I took that. Well, I didn't believe it really because I was like, all right, I gotta go do this. So I called up three friends, three friends I know, not that well, but well enough. I asked right. them to get together people to go to dinner. And we got, we went out to dinner with these seven people in three different groups. And so it's 21 people total. And I played the game and I, I used his questions at the time. And I thought, well, I'll just go through maybe 10 or 12 of them and an hour and a half and we'll be done. And after an hour and a half, the first time I tried to get up and people literally were dragging me down. I couldn't leave. I was at dinner for three hours and it happened the next time and the next time after that. And none of these people knew each other. They were not connected. I didn't organize it. I didn't put the people together. And I thought to myself, there is something here. And so I put together my own set of questions to do this in a group. And the first group I did was here in Dallas and it was for a small, medium-sized organization. And I didn't know before I went in, but I found out that two women that were pretty critical to the organization itself hated each other. Like they were, you know, Superman and Kryptonite. Wow. Not, not, and, and the people, who brought me in told me they hated them. So I was not my work. So obviously you can see why I could be very hesitant. First time I've ever done this and now I'm going into the lion's den, right? And unsure that's gonna work. So I asked questions and one of the questions I asked towards the end was, tell me about the biggest loss you ever had in your life. And one woman said her dog and one said her mom. Now, obviously they're not the same. But what I found from the game is not just finding common experiences, it's common emotions. And that emotions was lost. And so I saw them walk out of the room together and have a conversation. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing, right? Even to talk. And it seemed like they were having a really good conversation. I found out a week later, they went to lunch together. And a month later, they're actually social friends. Wow. So imagine in 30 days going from hating someone's guts right. to now being social friends with someone. Right. That's the power that's there because the key is when we self 
we vulnerably self-disclose people. We rocket trust in minutes that would take five or 10 years. And I've done this in groups of all sizes of people and it works exceptionally well. And I measure before and after. On an average, a group will increase trust, trust team closeness and engagement by 20% in 45 minutes, which again is unheard of. You, you, there's nothing you can do. Like trust falls in the rest of that because <laughs> you don't know someone when you do a trust fall. Right. It's actually really useful to talk about this because you don't know anything. What happens is it's the experience and the experience wears off. Right. But if you tell me that the biggest lesson you learned in the last year was because your mother died of cancer and that you found out that you need to invest in more in people and share more and open up, tell me the difference between that and a trust fall. That's like night and day. That's true. Right? The lever, you don't trust someone by their actions. You trust someone by their words and the conversation after the action itself. And so the key is you have to get people to share these. And when you do it in a group, it's way more powerful than one-on-one -on -one because then you get the entire group participating in this. And an example of this is that I went and did a small group in Oklahoma City at um, Oklahoma City Human Resources Society um, a month ago. And one of the people that was there was someone who heads uh, human resources for the Oklahoma City Thunder basketball team. Right. And she was telling me that she was sitting around the table and she's gone to these events in the past and that she didn't really remember people's name. And I spoke to her and she was like, I remember six out of the eight people around the table, which is pretty amazing a month later to remember people's names after you go to a luncheon with them. How many of us could really do that? It's Not because that experience sticks out so much and it's so unlike what someone else does. And when you apply this to a team or people you're working with or just a client or a prospect, you rocket that trust, which rockets the relationship. And it's in your self-interest to do this because the clients that you have that you love the best, why can't every client you have love, love you like that? Look at how much more flexibility, look at everything else. Well, it's because you don't have enough trust. And this is the best way to do it and the fastest and the quickest. And you can do it in a group. And let's just say you do it in a group of 50 people. It spreads across the people, even if they aren't in the same group, because they just assume that you're on the same wavelength and they treat you like that because I've seen it happen. So it'll work for anyone in any environment doing anything. I just chose business that it can work in your personal life or anything you're doing. Thank you for sharing that, Jason. And start to mention, if you want to get uh, those cards, cards of modernity, you can get them from Jason's website and the link is there in the show notes for easy access to acquire those. Jason, you know, besides being a uh, executive coach, you're also a best-selling author and you wrote a book, Social Wealth, How to Build Extraordinary Relationships by Transforming the Way We Live, Love, Lead, and Network. If I were to read this book, what are the three big things I will get from this book? Well, one, I think the difference is, is I gave people a blueprint how to do it. Thanks. So instead of marketing or 30% content, 70% marketing and sales, it's 90% content. Gotcha. And I don't give you tons of stories because I made it in 125 pages for it to be actionable and give you things that are working. For sure. And I am an extrovert and I've done all the stuff in the book at an extreme level. So I know all the stuff works exceptionally well. And I've taught other people to do it and they've created 
extraordinary results along the way. And I think the key is, again, is that you have to start, one, you've got to understand the concept of how to give appropriately. Because giving is the way to open doors, but you have to give with boundaries. For sure. I'd say the second thing is you have to listen more. People don't need, no, don't need you to sell you. They need you to listen. And Absolutely. the more you listen, the better you'll be off and the faster relationships that you will be. The third thing is, is that your quality of your relationships is a numbers game. And most people settle for very low level relationships because they don't have enough people to pick from. Mm. An example I would tell everyone out there. So if I give you an opportunity, let's say I, that your best friends in the world were gone. We wiped them off the planet, whatever something happened, like they went up to the moon and they were gone and there were no, you could not communicate with them. They were gone for an indefinite time and you had to find another one. If I gave you an opportunity to go in a room of five people and you could interview these people, you could do whatever and what, whoever you choose would embrace and jump up down on you and be grateful that you picked them to be their best friend. Would you choose to go in a room of five people or a room of a hundred to make that choice? And when I asked that question to probably more than a thousand people, everyone, I had no one say five. And then I go back and I say the same thing. So why are you living like there's only five people in the room? Right. So that's the, that, that it is a numbers game in order to find these people. And so that is the problem because what happens also when you don't have abundance is you start settling. I'm sure everyone on the phone has had a relationship that was 50, 50 at one point, but then turned 70, 30 and right. things happen and there are imbalances for reasons. But when they turn that way and stay that way, you have a toxic relationship and it needs to be cut out. Well, if you live in abundance, you do it because you have other options and you're willing to put up the boundaries and hold them. And if other people won't adhere to them, then you'll find someone else. But very few people do that because they don't have social connections and they live in scarcity and they don't know how to go about doing it. They don't know what to ask, where to go, um, how to build deep relationships quickly. And I'm not talking about surface level things. I'm talking about extraordinarily deep relationships you can build with people super fast. Right. So that's what you're going to be able to do. And really, if you follow it, it's impossible for you not to do it. And I show you how to do it. And that's why it's different than any other book that's out there right now. And whether you use it for business reasons or whether you use it for personal reasons, the same output will happen to you. Gotcha. And Startup Nation, if you want to purchase that book, Social Wealth, we have a link in the show notes to get that from Amazon.com. It's there in the show notes for easy access. Thank you for sharing that. That's powerful stuff, Chase, because it's funny you mentioned that uh, when you talk about that scarcity mindset. There was a, a, a show from my youth I used to watch. And in the show, there was a, uh, they were talking about how, you know, love your life and this, that, and the other. And uh, the grandpa said that, like, he finds it funny how, how, Everybody thinks the love of their life, you know, in this massive world is, is always in a 30 mile radius of one another. So when you thought, when you talk about that scarcity mindset, totally. I thought about that for sure. Yeah. And the, and the other thing to think about it too is mm -hmm. the most important capital on this entire work, right? Is social right. capital. And the way you build that is by becoming the hub in people's lives, not the spokes. Absolutely. And the problem is most people are the spokes and they're not the hubs. So they don't have control and they're at the mercy of everything else going around them. And that is where you take control back in your life and you create significantly more fulfillment, happiness, and success when you understand how this works 
and understand why it works and understanding that you as an introvert who thinks, oh God, I can't do this. Yes, you can. Because it really does not require that much work, right? I mean, I tell people, I've gone through, I did some networking for people and I did some tests and I had some introverts go through this and I had them go out two hours a week for 12 months, two hours. So I didn't include driving time, but I included when they stepped out of the car till they went back home or went back to their car, an hour. All these people met and started to get to know over that time period, somewhere between 500 to 1,000 people that they actually got to know on some level. And they all got new jobs, they all got pay raises, they all had all these things happen to them. All these great things, and they all said it was like the best year, the best years of their life they ever had. And all they did, and I had them go to charity events, so they were helping people. Right. They were actually adding and giving back while they were doing this, right? So they were doing something valuable of service while they were doing this simultaneously to show them that you can do a lot of good and have fun and meet great people along the way. And you can do it in a couple hours. So if we're talking about introverts who do this and they can meet that many people, look how if you do something similar, it could change your life. Thank you for sharing that. Jason, I wanted to ask you something really quickly. So I, I, I know uh, we talked earlier about like appreciating the journey and not necessarily the destination. And so I, I noticed that you like to run. You're a runner. You like to run in marathons and things of that nature. I just started though. I oh, just started. Start? Okay. Okay. That's I was going to ask you about that. Was that something you've always done or you just started? So here's what I did. Yeah. So I realized that over the next several years, Mm -hmm. my business is going to take more and more of my time, energy, and passion that I already had in order for me to get where I wanted to go. And I have to now find personal things that I can do that can excite me and help me through the times of challenges and ups and downs and whatever. So I sat down and said, I'm going to give myself, it's either 10 or 15 minutes to come up with some goal and some activity I was committed to do and I didn't know what to do, right? I didn't get any research, I didn't do anything. I had a piece of paper and I had to write it down. And there were things I wrote down and what was interesting about the marathon was that, and granted, I had never run over five miles ever before Mm. I signed up for this. So my goal in the marathon was not only to run the marathon but then was to qualify for the Boston Marathon. Okay. And I was like, I'll, Put this down as a goal for doing it in 18 months, which is pretty impossible. There's not that many people who have ever done that. But I mean, not ever running and then doing it, right? And so I was like, that is going to be really tough. And so I got a running coach initially. I found the best running group in Dallas I could. I learned from them, I asked questions. You know, and then what's happened is by the end of this year, I'll have run close to 1,900 miles. Nice. Uh, And I've run two marathons. I ran Chicago and then in October and six weeks later in Philly. In Chicago, my first marathon, I ran in three hours and 40 minutes, which again, that's extremely fast for someone who's never, and I'm not a runner. Right. Philly in 3:37. I'm running Phoenix in February, where my goal is probably 3:25 to 3:27, and right. my goal in June at this other marathon is to qualify for Boston. Slight chance in February I'll be able to qualify, but probably not much. But that's it, and I love it. I'm passionate about it, and it's exciting. And I learned to do it, and it's like anything else, right? 
difference in running is that you got to run the miles and no one wants to get up at five in the morning and run or actually get up at four sometimes mm -hmm. and have to run in the cold and the dark and but those are where the best people running are doing it right. they're doing what no one else wants to do and more importantly they're doing it consistently and you don't have to be the greatest runner to run that fast that's what people don't think because a lot of people are running group they're not gifted athletes yes there are some and some of them are they track but they did a high school or college track, yes. Do they have an advantage? Well, of course, but it's not a requirement for you and you can pretty much do anything. There's a girl in our running club that was not a, ever in any of that stuff and started running like three or four years ago and ran a race in December and ran it in two hours and 44 minutes and qualified for the Olympic trials. Wow. Right? I mean, crazy. so you can do it too, right? right? And so, but people don't want to do it. And I love it. I got hurt, you know, after Philadelphia. And so I went to physical therapy and I went in right away and I've been struggling through that, but I found a better process and system. And so it's actually a blessing it happened. And now I'm back running and I'm just going to do whatever it takes in order to get to that point, no matter what I have to do, how early I have to, I'm running on Christmas, I'm running on Christmas Eve, I'm running on Christmas Day, mm -hmm. right? I'm not letting anything stop or distract me from my goal or whatever I have to do or however early I have to run, right? And so, but you've got to have your own personal goals too, outside of just the business itself, because right. you're not... The, otherwise, you, at some point, your business will be your identity, and that's a dangerous place to live. Thank you for sharing that. I hope you caught it, caught that startup nation. That's important to have that separation between the two. Uh, Jason, really quickly, man, I think all entrepreneurs have a superpower. What's yours and why? I think my superpower is I'm really good at understanding human behavior and dynamics between people. Gotcha. And that to me is man, really helpful to meet people, build great relationships. And it's also helped me in my business because I can anticipate what people are going to do 95% of the time, three or four steps before they're actually there. Gotcha. And so, you know, that's going to wrap up the startup life. We really had an amazing time having Jason, man. Jason, any last nuggets of wisdom, any last nuggets of advice you want to share with Startup Nation before we head out today? I would just say for 2019, you know, you have your business plan, write down your development plan for yourself and what are you going to commit to and why are you doing those things? So at the end of it, you've made not only progress on your business, but your personal plan. And here's the other part of it. You can't get to the next level of your business if you don't up your skill sets and abilities. It's not going to work you're going to hit a wall. So that's going to wrap up the start of life powered by the binge podcast network. Did you enjoy being on the show, Jason? Loved it. Thank you so much. All right, startup nation. So here's my final take. I absolutely love our conversation with Jason Troy for two reasons, particularly one startup nation. We got great executive coaching for absolutely free. And this guy has been doing this at blue cross blue shield and Google, and we got it for absolutely free. And we got amazing value from, leadership to building a company culture to how to just downright just treat people also startup nation i loved our conversation with jason because he talks about being thorough and conscientious and i really think that part is important a lot of times especially in this microwave instantaneous world we often forget the details we often forget the small things 
So Jason's meticulous nature as he goes on his path to entrepreneur, but more importantly, helping people is why I absolutely love the value he brought and the service that he provides. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, have an idea for a show topic, or like to advertise on our show, please send us a message on the Startup Life Podcast Facebook page. And while you are there, like and follow our page as well. It's a way for us to engage with you, Startup Nation, and really grow our community. The link is here in the show notes. Subscribe to the show as it can be now be heard on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, or whatever your favorite platform to get your podcast on. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts and you find our content valuable, please give us a five-star rating as it will help us climb the charts and help more people find our show. Also, don't forget to sign up for the Startup Life All Access Pass to get exclusive content. This is exclusively on the Bench Podcast Network's Patreon page. And hey, if you have an idea, be about that life, the startup life.